You know, we tend to be, at least in the Western world, pretty kind of either-or thinkers. Uh, We're not very comfortable with gray. Uh, When we encounter uh, two seemingly contradictory things that we don't think can both be true or we don't understand how they would both be true, we tend to just sort of pick one. Um, So we think in these very black and white terms, you know, extroverts are outgoing all the time. Uh, Introverts are shy and never want to be around people. Um, A terrible boss is also a terrible person and terrible at their job. Liberals must always support Democrats. Conservatives must always support Republicans. This financial decision is either entirely foolish or completely wise. This person is absolutely wrong or totally right. But I think in life, most of the situations we face are more nuanced than that. They're more complex. They're kind of both-and situations rather than just either-or. There are extroverts who are shy. There are introverts who love people. I'm one of them. You can have a boss who's a great person and terrible to work for. You can be liberal and not support Democrats. You can be conservative and not support Republicans. There can be a financial decision that is a good idea in theory, but right now, not a good idea. There can be a person who has a good point about this, but is wrong about other things. You can think the show This Is Us is brilliantly written and well acted, and you don't want to watch it at all. I've heard, at least. Someone told me that. We're more comfortable with either or, black and white, simplistic. But life is often not that way. It's subtle, it's nuanced, it's gray. There are things that don't quite add up in our mind. And this reality impacts our faith life. When we experience loss, for example, if we lose someone close to us, Scripture teaches us, and Jesus spoke about this, you know, we, we feel deep, real pain. And also, we can discover a joy, an inexplicable joy, in that moment of knowing someone who knows the Lord is experiencing more joy than we could ever imagine right now. Both of those things can be true. It's like emotional oil and water. They don't seem to go together, but yet, Scripture lifts that up. We have a hope that allows us to be in pain and also cling to joy at the same time. It doesn't add up. How can those two things be true? Same thing with God's nature in Scripture. We see God is love. He is merciful. He shows grace. And also, he's the God of justice. He punishes sin. He takes it seriously. And he shows wrath. We see both of those true in Scripture. We want to go one or the other. You know, he's either all love or all wrath. It's not true. They're both true, but they might seem to us incompatible. Scripture also, for example, tells us that our salvation is based on placing our faith in Christ, coming to a place of trust in the Lord and choosing to believe in him. And yet scripture also talks about God's sovereignty and says we've been predestined to this faith. So there's some mysterious combination of our free will decision and also God's sovereignty over history. How can those two things both be true? And yet scripture lifts them both up as being true. They're gray. They're not either or. They're both and. They might be mysteries in our minds, but they are not mysteries in God's mind. Today we continue this series, Deeply Rooted. We're talking about our spiritual heritage, kind of some key moments in the history of the church. And today we talk about the ultimate gray subject, the nature of Jesus. And it relates in part to how we understand the Trinity, the idea of God, three in one. But I say it's the nature of Jesus is a gray subject because the biblical doctrine, the ancient belief, is that he was fully God and also fully human at the same time. 
Now, what does that mean that he was fully human and fully God at the same time? Can we find some clarity on this issue? And why does it matter? And let me assure you, it really does matter. (laughs) You might think the subject of Jesus' nature is kind of an abstract thing, an abstract concept, but it's not. You care about this topic if you've ever thought anything like, does God understand me? Does he care about me? How could God accept me with all my flaws? Can God really fix this situation? If you've ever thought anything like any of that, the answer to questions like that are found in knowing who Jesus really is. And so the question we're going to drive at today as we continue this series is this. What does it mean that Jesus was fully God and fully human? What does it mean that Jesus was fully God and fully human simultaneously? Now, the church in the first couple of centuries after Jesus' life wrestled with this question. Um, And their exploration of this question is going to help us. So that's what we're going to look at today. Because people at the time, in the first couple centuries after Jesus, they had gotten into these either-or mindsets to varying degrees. Jesus was either God or he was human. He can't really be both in the same level. And so some people were more comfortable with his divinity. Some people were more comfortable with his humanity. And it led to all these offshoot ideologies that are not rooted in scripture, but yet people were believing them. So for example, some were saying Jesus was like 50-50. He's like half God, half man. He's like Hercules or something. I don't know. He's like 50-50. Not fully God, fully human, like half of each. Some had the idea that he was God. They were comfortable with the idea that Jesus was God, but they weren't very comfortable with the idea of him as being human. So they said he just looked human. He wasn't really human. He just appeared that way. Then some had the idea he was really human, but he wasn't really divine while here on earth. He was human, he was born, and then sort of after his crucifixion, he was elevated to a divine status. That's not scriptural either, but that idea was out there. Some had the idea he was like a shapeshifter. There's like God the Father, and then he like kind of changes form into Jesus for a while on earth, and then he like becomes God the Father again. Like, like, like he can't be more than one thing at a time. He's got to only be one thing at a time. This is like the Clark Kent theory of Jesus. It's like, you know, Jesus is Clark Kent. He's like God in disguise on earth. This thinking was out there. And there were people teaching it in in various corners of the Roman world. They were writing about it, promoting these ideas. And so this question was creating confusion and disunity in the church. And all of these, uh, these ideas that were not scriptural were really starting to gain some traction in some places. Um, and by the way, there are versions of all of everything I just said alive and well today. You start listening for them and you'll hear them. You know, I, I, you know, I don't know if Jesus was all that, but I, I think he was kind of sort of a messenger of God. I think he was, he was on like a special mission, but he wasn't like God. That's one version, you know. He was a good man. He was, a, you know, maybe a good philosopher or something like that. Or maybe, you know, he was just sort of especially empowered by God. He's kind of like a magician I've heard versions of all of those, and those were in the ancient world as well. And you know what all of these ideologies do? They all lower the status of Jesus. They strip him of either his power or his humanity, which is his ability to sympathize and understand our experiences. So our goal is to have a rich, full, biblical, historic view of who Jesus is, because that understanding is what gives us 
that real resilient hope. That's what we want. So in 325 AD, the church... uh, met to consider this question. It was kind of the first empire-wide council of church leaders. It was called the Council of Nicaea. Some of you may have heard that before. I found that if people know anything about church history, this might be one of the like two things they've heard of. Um, The Council of Nicaea, it was definitely one of the most significant moments that happened in the history of the church since the time of Jesus in 325 AD. I'm going to talk for a few moments about the council itself, and then we're going to talk about the scripture that, that uh, was the foundation of the decision they came to. A little background on the council. We've talked about this before. In the first couple centuries of Christianity, Christians were a fringe group. They were kind of outsiders. People didn't really know what they believed. There was times where they were persecuted, viewed with suspicion. They were on the outside. And around the year 300, there was an emperor named Diocletian who said, I'm going to get rid of this Christianity thing. And he issued this order, empire-wide persecution of Christians. He's arresting Christians, destroying places of worship, rounding up scripture, burning it. He is going to extinguish this Christianity thing. And so it's getting really bad right around the year 300. And then that emperor's reign comes to an end and a political revolution happens. Because a Roman general named Constantine marched on Rome, and he, he won this famous battle um, at this bridge. It's called the Milvian Bridge. Uh, There's a picture of it over the Tiber River, and he won this victory. And when, he, when Constantine, later after becoming emperor, describes what happened at this victory uh, outside of Rome, um, he says he, he had a vision, and he also had a dream, but he had a vision, and he saw a symbol in the sky. And when he described the symbol, this was it, the Cairo which is the two first Greek letters in Christ. And it said, in this sign, conquer. That's the the image he saw in the dream that he had. And later he would put that symbol on shields and things in the Roman army and and on coins and things like that. Um, And so uh, he saw this symbol and then he became emperor after he won this victory. And then he kind of pushed out some political rivals. And Constantine became emperor. And for the first time in the history of the church, uh, Christianity was protected and even promoted under Constantine. Now, Constantine still remained a little bit of a pagan. He didn't sort of set down all of his religious views, but he really believed Jesus was something real and helped him come to power. And so he is now emperor, and he issues this order. Persecution of Christians stops. If you've taken their land, give it back. If you've taken their buildings, give it back. Christians are not to be harassed in any way. And it was just a massive turning point in church history when the church went from the fringe persecuted church to, in many ways, now kind of the establishment. It was a very significant moment. And so when Constantine becomes a Christian and he's trying to get his head around this faith and his new power, he sees that the the Christians across the Mediterranean world don't have clarity on this subject of Jesus's nature. He sees that they're debating it and he wants to get this figured out. So he calls the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, Nicaea was a city, I'll show you a map here, in uh, what is now northwestern Turkey. And he calls this council to get all of the Christian leaders on the same page. And it's an amazing thing. I mean, think about it. His predecessor emperor is trying to kill all the Christians. And now he, Constantine, is saying, let's all get together. I'm going to pay your way here. Some of these Christian leaders who showed up, 318 of them showed up from around the world, Roman world. Some of them literally bore the scars of the persecution 
from his predecessor. There's this dramatic moment where there was a, a, a bishop there who was missing an eye because of what he had gone through. And, and Constantine walks over and kisses this man on the cheek, on the side of his eye that's missing as a symbol of, that's over. And so they begin this council, and they're going to address the question of Jesus' nature. Now, there's a man at the council. His name is Arius. I'm going to put his name up here. Arius. Arius was there. He was one of these folks who was, who was teaching something about Jesus that is not biblical. It's not what Jesus said about himself. His view came to be known as Arianism. And, and in a nutshell, Jesus is lower than the Father. You've got the Father, and Jesus is not really fully God. That was Arius's view. And, and he had been promoting this. It was starting to catch on in some places. He had this idea that, you know, there's one God, God the Father, the Creator, and Jesus ain't him. And then at the council, Arius wrote a song about it, about what he believed. And at the council, he like bursts into song. And this is what he said in, in his uh, teaching. The uncreated God has made the Son. The beginning of things created and by adoption has God made the Son into an advancement of himself. Yet the Son's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does he share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of his mysteries. The members of the Trinity share unequal glories. So this is what Arius is talking about, and he's championing this. Now, I don't know anything about the music industry in the ancient world, but I'm pretty sure that song was terrible. <laughs> but he bursts into this song of, here's what I'm all about. And you see what he's claiming. Jesus was created. He wasn't eternal. He's not of the same divine makeup as God. He's not equal to God. He just sort of teaches on God's behalf. He's of unequal glory with the Father. He's sort of God. That's what Arius is saying. He's sort of God. And Arianism, which followed Arius, was becoming popular in a few corners of the empire. So how did he come up with this view? Well, he was committed to the idea that there's one God, which Christians do believe. We understand it to be three in one, the Trinity. So he's thinking one God, you know, I don't know how it makes sense to have Jesus also be God. Plus Jesus got tired and he was emotional and he got hungry and thirsty. He seems pretty human. He was born after all. So he must not really be God. He's something else. That's where Arius was going. And so if you plot his logic on a timeline, this is basically what it looked like. If you're going left to right, God the Father was uncreated. He's always existed. He's eternal. And then there was some time in between before Jesus was created and came into being. And in Arius's mind, if there was a time when Jesus didn't exist, he's not the same as the Father. He, he, he's on a lower level. He's less so Jesus isn't fully divine, he's later, and he's lesser. Now the council, led by uh, a man named Athanasius, who was a bishop of Alexandria, they start pushing back. You know, when you look at the totality of Scripture, this argument cannot be sustained, that Jesus isn't fully God. And so Athanasius speaks up, and, or, or he was writing against Arius, and he said this, For Jesus alone being word of the Father and above all, was in consequence both able to recreate all and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. In other words, Athanasius is saying because of Jesus' humanity, he's worthy to suffer and pay the penalty and die in our place. And because of his divinity, he's able to resurrect and rescue. 
His divine nature and human nature are both required for him to be our Lord and Savior. Now, we're going to talk in a moment about the scriptural backing for, for where he landed, where, what Athanasius was saying and where the council was landing. But I just want to make sure you get the concept first. Fully God, fully human. He's not exactly the same as God the Father. They're not exactly the same. He's a separate person, but yet still God. So how do you explain that picture, biblical picture? It's kind of a mystery. How are they, how are they still one God and not two? Well, the council had, they were trying to find a way to articulate this, and they came up with a word to explain this reality, the biblical picture, that Jesus can be fully God but be separate from the Father but yet still be one God. And this is the word they came up with. It's a Greek word. Remember, they spoke Greek. Homoousios. Say that with me. Homoousios. It's a Greek word. Um, Homo meaning same. Ousios relates to being, essence, substance. Um, And so it literally means of the same substance, of the same essence. They were saying Jesus is not exactly the same as God the Father, but he's of the same divine substance. He is homoousios, the same, he's made of the same material, if you could say it a different way. So what does that look like? Well, in the Old Testament, when when God shows up, uh, a number of times he shows up as fire, right? The Moses and the burning bush, the pillar of fire in the Old Testament. So let's run with that metaphor for a minute to try to understand this idea of same substance but separate. Um, there's this great metaphor uh, that uh, biblical scholar David Wilhite uses uh, in his amazing book, The Gospel According to the Heretics. Um, and he's, he's, he's talking about, he, he gives this image, I'll put it up on the screen here, of, of uh, a flame. And, and kind of a flame being passed between torches, okay? So you have to hold the torch to not get burned, but we're not really concerned about the torch. We're thinking of the flame. So you have the flame on the one torch, and to ignite the second, you have to touch it to the second one, and then there's fire there. But sort of when did that second flame begin to exist? It's not really when it was touched because you could say that the flame itself sort of always existed within the flame of the first. It was always there. They're kind of of the same substance. And that's kind of a picture. Jesus always existed as and within the substance of God the Father. You could use the same analogy with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is like the flame, light from light, God from God. Now, the metaphor isn't perfect, um, you physicists out there, <laughs> you might be like, actually, there's a property of fire that doesn't make that work. Generally, as a metaphor, it does work because it's the idea that there's two separate flames, different expressions of the same substance, both eternally existing. And that's what the Bible teaches, is Jesus always existed. He, always, he was not created. Jesus was not created when he came to earth. The Bible says that Jesus was the only begotten son, that language of begotten, but that is a word that um, is more describing the relationship of father and son and using human terms, but it's not saying Jesus didn't exist before he was born. So, so you're not going to find a place in scripture that talks about Jesus being created. And so it, it's hard to wrap our head around this, but um, we're going to get some clarity here in a second. So the council ultimately rejected Arius's teaching. They actually exiled him and got rid of all of his writings. And they came up with the Nicene Creed, 
which is one of the most ancient statements of what Christians believe. And so I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to see some of what we've been talking about in the creed. Some of you may be familiar with this. Some Christian traditions grow up reciting and memorizing this creed. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And here's where it gets into what we've been talking about. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, here it is, of the same essence, that's that homoousios, as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate, that means he took on flesh, by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now there's a little bit more, but I want to stop there for a second. I've highlighted in... Uh, yellow statements in this to Jesus's divinity and in green statements to his humanity. Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God, not made, same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, so Christ is creator. Then all this human stuff became incarnate, born by an actual person, Mary. He was made human, crucified, suffered, buried, and then it goes back to divinity again. He rose again, ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. His kingdom will never end. So they're holding up those two things that are so easy to make either or, and it's saying both and. It's both and. Now let's finish the creed just, just because. It goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. It says, um, it says uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. little footnote there. Catholic there doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Catholic is the Greek word for universal. So we believe in one holy universal apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. This is their statement of what Christians believe. Without a shadow of a doubt, they affirmed Jesus' simultaneous humanity and divinity. It wasn't either or. God or human, it was the greatest both and ever. Fully God, fully human. That mystery is worth preserving. And so this is what scripture teaches us. But what are some of the places in the Bible that are the basis for what they decided? Because they were using scripture to arrive at this. They didn't just make this stuff up. Let's look at just a few. And then we're going to talk about why this is important to know. What does it mean for our life? So if you have your Bible, turn to the gospel of John. Um, The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar with the layout. Um, If if you don't have a Bible, grab one on the table. The Gospel of John starts on page 723. You like that? Page 720, I actually looked up the number. Page 723, Gospel of John. We start in chapter 1. I'm going to have you highlight a few things. And I think you're going to see how clearly the council drew from Scripture to arrive at this ancient statement of faith. John 1, starting in verse 1. John, who was, by the way, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote this. In the beginning was the Word. That's John's term for Jesus in this section. I don't have time to get into why, but that's what he's, how he's referring to Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now skip down to verse 14. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's highlight a couple of things. In the first verse, it says the word Jesus was with God and was God. Highlight those two little phrases, with God and was God. You get just a glance at the Trinity there. Three in one. Jesus was God. He was God, but also he's with God. There's a relationality. They're not exactly the same thing. With God and was God. And then it says in verse 3, I would highlight this, through him all things were made. Jesus is the creator. He was involved. You read Genesis 1, the creation of the universe? Jesus is there. He He is the word of God made flesh. Through him all things were made. And then in verse 14, I would highlight that amazing phrase, the word became flesh. It's not saying Jesus came into existence when he was born or he was created. What was new is that he came in human form. He arrived here, but he had always existed. Flip over to the book of Colossians. It is eight books to the right. Page 805, if you're using these Bibles on the tables. 805. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. You're going to see some more language that uh, definitely influenced the final form of the Nicene Creed. It's talking about Jesus, and the Apostle Paul is writing this in, starting in verse 15, Colossians 1:15. Look what Paul writes. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now let's highlight a couple of things there. In that first verse, verse 15, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Highlight that. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. You know, Jesus, his disciples one time said, hey, Jesus, why don't you show, show us the Father? That, that'll be enough for us. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Another thing to highlight in verse 16 In him, all things were created. This is what we saw in John just a second ago. Christ, the creator. All things were created through him, it says. And then this amazing phrase in verse 19, I would highlight, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness dwell in Jesus. Fully human, fully divine. Why does this matter? We're about to see. Flip Seven more books to the right, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. This is page 820. 
Hebrews 7. This is where it's going to start to have a really sharp point on it, this whole idea of why Jesus had to be fully divine and fully human in order to be the Savior that he is. Uh, The book of Hebrews talks about how what Jesus did relates to the system in the Old Testament and how God related to people in the Old Testament. And um, in the book of Hebrews, it's describing the fact that in the Old Testament period, sin had to be dealt with through sacrifice. And it was animal sacrifice. And so if you have sin, you bring a sacrifice to the temple. The animals killed, the blood um, is put on the altar, and that absolves us of sin. But guess what? We keep sinning. So that just has to keep going over and over and over and over all the time. I am confident that if you ever were within miles of the temple in ancient Israel, it smelled like a barbecue all the time because day after day, all day, every day, sacrificing these animals to deal with sin. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer is saying, look how much better it is what happened with Jesus. Look at this. 7 verse 23. It says, now there have been many of those priests, in other words, the ones who kept doing all these sacrifices, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, and I would highlight this, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest, and I would highlight this, truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Once for all. So how does this affect our lives? Last scripture here, flip to Hebrews 4. So just a couple chapters earlier. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. He's talking about Jesus, our high priest, the one who makes sacrifice for our sins. He says this, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For, and I would highlight the rest of this amazing sentence, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And I would just keep on highlighting this next phrase. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We started out with this question. Uh, What does it mean that Jesus was fully God and fully human? We're starting to get a sense of that from the Council of Nicaea and from the scriptures upon which they drew their viewpoint. And and this is it. It's going to be kind of a two-part answer to this question. Being fully human, Jesus had a body to sacrifice on our behalf, and he really understands what it's like to be us. Being fully human, Jesus had a body to sacrifice on our behalf, And he really understands what it's like to be us. As the author of Hebrews said, he empathizes with our weaknesses. He gets it. So that's the first part of the answer. Being, here's the second, being fully God, he has the power to rescue and transform us. He can do something about it. He has the power to rescue and transform us. 
Jesus is God in the flesh, one substance with the Father. God from God, light from light, as the council put it. Is, is that the picture of Jesus you have in your mind? As John put it, Jesus created all things. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. He didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. It was there that the eternal Christ wrapped himself in flesh as one of us. Is that the Jesus you know? As Colossians put it, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. His fullness. As Hebrews put it, Jesus meets our need. He's able to save us completely. He empathizes with our weakness. And as a result, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Is that the Jesus that you know, that picture? The God who understands, who loves us, who cares, who paid the price to deal with our sins once and for all and has the power to give us life. Fully God, fully human. Both at the same time. Have you ever lost somebody that you love? Jesus knows how that feels. Have you ever experienced a betrayal by a family member or a close friend? Jesus knows how that feels. He really knows. He lived it. Have you ever experienced financial insecurity or worried about your future? You know, Jesus grew up poor and under an oppressive government. He knows what that's like. You ever wonder if God really loves you? I mean, I know he loves everyone, yeah, but does he love me? You ever wonder those things? Jesus proved he does with his life. He gave his life for you. The creator, eternal Christ, made you to know him and enjoy him. And when your sin made that impossible, he became like you to pay your penalty and rescue you and bring you home. That's the picture. You know, we're coming up close uh, to Christmas when we celebrate this moment where the eternal creator Christ, equal in power and of the same essence with the Father and the Spirit, stooped lower than we can imagine to become a helpless baby. And sometimes the, the sort of holiday spirit of the whole thing can, can make that not very shocking to us. It's so familiar, right? This moment of, of the eternal Christ taking on flesh and becoming one of us, this is God, make no mistake, making himself vulnerable, approachable, knowable, killable. The Messiah, God's Son, who the prophets, by the way, called Emmanuel. Some of you know what that word means. Emmanuel, God with us. If Jesus isn't fully God, he's not really Emmanuel. He's not God with us. If he's not fully God, he's just God's messenger sent to do God's dirty work. But God did not outsource his dirty work. He didn't delegate this task. He himself came in the flesh to rescue us. And to do that, he had to be fully God and fully human. And he was. 
And that truth changes our lives, absolutely transforms our future, changes everything. In the Gospel of John, it says, anybody who receives Jesus, who accepts who he is and receives them into his life, anyone who believes in Jesus, places their trust in him, that person now has the right to be a child of God. (laughs) And so if you this morning are hearing this and this is news to you, uh, you've never heard that God loves you, you've never believed he can do anything about your life or that he has a plan or a purpose for you, or it's been hard for you to believe that God loves you, I want to tell you that he loves you more than you can imagine. And he knows what it's like to be in your shoes and he has the power to change your eternity, and he wants to. And so you just have to place your trust in him, your faith, and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know everything, but I believe you're real, and I want you to change me from the inside out. Would you save me? And you put your trust in him, and he will transform you. And so I encourage you, if you have not had a moment like that where you've placed your faith in Christ, you've invited him into your life and said, I need you, I can't save myself. Take time to do that. You don't have to have all the answers yet. It's the beginning of a journey. (laughs) It's not get all your act together and then feel worthy to come to God. It's beginning a journey. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. Jenny, you know, any of our staff here, we would love to pray with you, talk with you about that. We are, we're here for you. Um, But we don't want you to miss out on the magnitude of what God himself did for you.